it's well understood that this chronic disease, type 2 diabetes, is linked to lifestyle. Combine a diet high in sugar, including fruits, honey, and starch, all of which turn into varying amounts of sugar when digested, with a lack of exercise, and the result will be type 2 diabetes with the miserable complications that come with it. That's an excerpt from Dr. Jacoby, the co-author of Sugar Crush, How to Reduce Inflammation, Reverse Nerve Damage, and Reclaim Good Health. I want to welcome you back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we bridge the gap between theory and practice with strategies, tools, and ideas that we can all use immediately, applied to the most current brain research, to heighten productivity in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. I'm Andrea Samadhi, and launched this podcast almost four years ago to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results. For today's episode, number 275, we'll revisit one of my favorite episodes, number 117, on the damaging impact of sugar on the brain and body to review what we covered and see if there's anything else important that the research has revealed. There's a lot that's new with this topic, but as I reviewed this past episode, I'd completely forgotten some of the details that we covered a few years ago that are very important. On our last episode, we covered what sugar does to the brain, cognition, and well-being, how sugar contributes to cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease, why sugar is so addictive, what surprising things spike blood sugar. You can review this past episode by clicking on the link in the show notes, but for today's episode, we're going to dive a bit deeper with what sugar does to the brain, body, cognition, and our health by tying in what's emerged since that first episode. We're going to look at the results of two people who've been tracking their blood glucose levels with the Freestyle Libre Glucose Monitor to see what patterns emerge eating certain foods. The first individual we'll look at had A1C levels that have recently gone into the danger zone, signaling type 2 diabetes, showing an A1C level of over 8.5 on a recent blood test. I'm the second chart, and I'm not insulin resistant, but I know that sugar doesn't work for me at all. I don't need a blood test to know what makes me feel horrendous. My A1C levels sit around 5.8, which is in line with someone on a lower carbohydrate and higher fat diet. This episode is not about the best diet to choose, and when I sat down to write this, I quickly saw that this topic of health especially as it relates to nutrition, is such a challenging and difficult one to cover as not one size fits all. I do want to acknowledge that there are many different diet plans out there and that I'm not here to say one's better than another. I recognize it's downright frustrating when you're doing everything the right way, you're eating clean and you're exercising and you're seeing zero results. This seems to be especially true in the area of weight loss, where I recently saw a post from Chris Cornell, who shares his weight loss strategies on Twitter, and he asked what ended up being a highly controversial question. He asked, 
Why are most people unable to achieve significant and sustainable weight and fat loss through lifestyle modifications? He added, I'm guessing some people have something amiss with their regulatory mechanism. For many, I believe that they're unable to regulate the crap foods they've been eating, he said. And I'll share what I learned over the past few weeks that might shed some light into why it's so difficult to make that shift with what we eat and why one bad food choice can often set us up to sabotage ourselves to continue making poor food choices with that snowball effect. Today, we'll put the focus on what we can control using the data that we uncovered with this glucose monitor to inform our action steps at the end of this episode. There's so much to this problem that includes things we can't control, like our heredity, our hormones, our stress levels, to name a few factors. So I'm going to make it very easy. Let's focus only on what sugar does to the brain and body. I want to acknowledge that we're all different, and your path is probably going to be much different from mine, but I'm sure some of what I'll share with you will resonate with you. We all hit a point where we know something isn't right, and then we go to the doctor looking for a solution. I really don't believe in accidents, and when we feel like something is off with our health, I think it's very important to listen to our intuition here and look into it. My journey of looking for the right diet plan began in 2005, before I had children, when I was looking for a solution to why my feet were going numb during exercise. And there were many twists and turns along the way before things began to click for me with my health. When I felt something was off with that numbness in my feet, I went to a foot doctor to look for answers. Looking back now, this one decision, I think, moved the needle of health and wellness the most for me personally over the past two decades. As the foot doctor I went to see was Dr. Richard Jacoby, the author of Sugar Crush, How to Reduce Inflammation, Reverse Nerve Damage, and Reclaim Good Health. Dr. Jacoby took one look at me and he said, you don't look like the typical patient I usually see. People come in to see me in their late 50s and 60s, and I remember I was around 33 back then, and people who were in their 50s like I am now felt ancient to me, so I started to think I was in the wrong place. He went on to say that people came in with different types of health problems, and his job was to help them solve these problems. Over the years, he became excellent with his advice for people, leading him to appear in one of those top doctor lists. He was on the list around the time I went to see him, 2003, 5, 8, and 10, and he just asked his patients to do two things. He asked them to eliminate sugar from their diet and make sure they're taking omega-3 fatty acids, since most Americans are deficient here. I started to think maybe my running shoes were too tight, and I started to feel bad for wasting his time, as I didn't think his advice was going to help me. But I looked at him and I said, okay, that's easy enough, as I was already doing one of his suggestions. Next was to eliminate sugar, which I did, but I didn't know how it would completely change my health. Of course, our health requires constant work, and this change didn't last forever. My next turn was around 2014, about 10 years later, 
I remember cooking my children dinner and I was standing at the stove and I thought, what am I supposed to eat? So I Googled healthy eating and that led me to the work of fitness model and trainer Jason Whitrock and he's known as the blood sugar king. Jason's on a war against diabetes and obesity and we'll talk about him a bit later on this episode. But the point here is that there's no straight line. I think we've all got our own individual path to figure out with our own individual secrets to unlock our optimal levels of health. And I've still not figured out all of mine yet, but as I'm approaching age 52, I feel better now than I did at age 30. Dr. Jacoby's book, Sugar Crush, says it all. He says that the link between sucrose and obesity, with its compounding symptoms of high blood pressure, high blood glucose, high cholesterol, as well as ancillary conditions like migraine headaches, carpal tunnel syndrome, gallbladder disease, irritable bowel syndrome, reflux disease, and other chronic health issues, is irrefutable. His good friend, Robert Lustig, pediatric endocrinologist and professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, simply calls sugar poison. So I'll say it again, I don't think it was an accident that I ended up at Dr. Jacoby's offices that day, and I thought about him while measuring my glucose levels for this episode. But before I get to the results of what each of us discovered in this process of measuring our glucose levels, I think it's important to note what we learned on that first episode that I'd forgotten about because we can't remember everything, just what's important to us, and this is very important at the moment. Since last week's episode was about building a faster, stronger, more resilient brain by understanding BDNF, or that compound that Dr. Rady says is crucial for preventing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, I want to focus this episode on something Dr. Rady said that really made me think. He said, did you know that high glucose levels are toxic to the brain and limits the production of this glorious compound BDNF that has such a profound effect on cognition and well-being? Dr. Rady's quote made me think back to a bonus episode I did for Podbean's Wellness Week that goes right along with what Dr. Rady said. It was a quote from Dr. David Perlmuter, who also wrote the foreword to Dr. Rady's book, Go Wild. And it was Dr. Perlmuter's documentary on Alzheimer's disease that made me think hard about those top five health and wellness staples that we talk about on the podcast. Dr. Perlmuter said, Did you know that sugar in the brain looks like Alzheimer's in the brain and that 60% of cognitive decline is related to how you handle blood sugar? He says that elevated blood sugar shrinks the brain. I had to stop for a minute and take these words and create a visual to bring this to light. You know how sometimes you can hear the words of something, but until you can actually see and feel the words come to life, like the image I put in the show notes, there isn't as much meaning to what you might be reading. I think the image of a healthy brain next to a severely shrunken Alzheimer's brain is an image I'll never forget. It was sugar that caused this brain to shrink. Remember that quote that we talked about from Dr. Dale Bredesen on our last episode, where he said Alzheimer's disease robs its victims of their very humanity and terrorizes their families. So why would any of us knowingly choose this for ourselves? 
Why would we buy each other gifts at holidays that include things that science reveals are toxic to the brain? Why do teachers reward children with candy at school? And why do we stand around eating cake at the end of a church service? I know why, because it tastes good. But it's here that we have to take the information we're learning from science and connect the dots to form knowledge and then apply this knowledge to become wise. This is where we go from theory to practice with this podcast. I might be told I'm a bit on the boring side these days because I've cut out all the foods that are fun, but I'm doing this with the purpose of improving clarity, focus, and performance on a daily basis. So what did we learn by measuring our blood sugar levels? I'm sure you've seen people measuring their blood sugar, and then they share how this data makes them to help better choices with the foods they eat. I first saw this device with Jason Whitrock, who we mentioned earlier, and we interviewed him on episode 94. If you go to his Instagram page, you'll see many tests he's done with a variety of different foods, drinks, and snacks to see how each one affects his blood sugar levels, and there were many surprises. If you're curious, go to his page and look at his tests, especially when he tested white rice. It was interesting that hot white rice spiked his blood sugar into the danger zone, but when he applied this theory called the cooling theory and he put the rice in the fridge for 24 hours, it kept his blood sugar in the safe zone. He mentions at the end of every episode that the foods that took his blood sugar into the danger zone should be avoided by someone who's insulin resistant or has type 2 diabetes. So let's look at my results. For week one, you can see my week one blood sugar averages as very stable, around 96 milligrams with no spikes anywhere. That first week, I almost gave up measuring because I pretty much eat the same foods every day and I was getting the same spikes around the same time every day. Around 9 a.m., I usually eat breakfast and Ezekiel bread with peanut butter and you can see this is typically when my blood sugar spikes the most, about 9 in the morning. Since I'm not diabetic, my blood sugar goes back to normal pretty quickly. Around 12, lunchtime, I'll have a protein shake with almond milk and some berries in it that are low glycemic that don't spike my blood sugar. And then usually around 3, I'll have some eggs, sometimes with bacon, sometimes with avocado, sometimes I'll have fish and vegetables. But either way, everything on my chart was predictable, no surprises, even on the days when I ate a couple pieces of chocolate, something that I sometimes do when I have writing blocks. Since I'm not diabetic or insulin resistant, small amounts of sugar don't seem to do much to my blood sugar. But look what happened when I traveled in week two. Week two, I was away from home and I ate some things I usually don't eat. Normally, I bring food with me when I travel as it saves money and time trying to find a place to eat, but this time it was a quick trip, so I didn't. If you look at the second graph in the show notes, you can see what happened when I was away for the weekend. You will see two times my blood sugar rose up. One was a turkey sandwich on whole wheat bread from a place called Jersey Mike's around 3 p.m., and then again around 9 p.m. that night. I usually follow a strict eating schedule where I don't eat past 5.30 at night. It's the intermittent fasting schedule where you fast for 16 hours and then you've got an 8-hour eating window. But the event we were at ended up late, so a group of us decided to order food from a local Thai restaurant. I love Thai food, especially Pad Thai, so that's what I ordered. This meal that was delicious 
took my blood sugar over 200, putting me in the danger zone with this meal. It did stable out in the night, but here's what's interesting for me. Whenever I eat something off my usual plan, I feel starving the next day. It just messes up the whole next day for me. And while it was worth it to sit and enjoy a meal with the others, it's good to know what happens to our body when we overload it with high glucose foods. If you look at the second graph the next day, my blood sugar kept dipping too low. When when it dipped too low and was showing red, that's when I felt really hungry. And it would have been easy to eat something else that was off the menu, showing how one food choice can impact the series of choices you make over the next few days. This was eye-opening for me. Now let's look at the graph of someone who's just crossed the threshold of being diabetic. I didn't even pick a sugary food for this example, which would have had an obvious blood sugar spike. But first, what happens to someone who's diabetic? Diabetes is a problem with your body that causes blood sugar, also called blood glucose levels, to rise higher than normal. This is also called hyperglycemia. When you eat, your body breaks down food into sugar and it sends it into the blood, and insulin helps move the sugar from the blood into your cells. For a person with diabetes, there's a problem with insulin, but not everybody with diabetes has the same problem. There's different types of diabetes, type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes. But if you have type 2 diabetes, your body will not use insulin properly, and this is called insulin resistance. At first, your cells can make extra insulin to make up for it, but over time, your pancreas can't make enough insulin to keep your blood sugar levels at normal levels. And type 2 diabetes develops most often in middle age and older adults, but can appear in younger people. If you look at week one with a type 2 diabetic person, in week one, he noticed spikes with foods that were high in carbs, like bread, that stayed high well into the night and only started to come down to normal levels at 9 in the morning the next day. The obvious takeaway from this was that for someone who's past the threshold with diabetes or they're in the danger zone, that they'll eventually need to see the doctor to take medicine to keep their blood sugar levels stable. For some people, diet and exercise could be the answer to regulate blood sugar, but if your blood sugar is staying high for too long, remember, glucose in the brain is toxic to the brain and that elevated blood sugar shrinks the brain or even that sugar in the brain looks like Alzheimer's in the brain. So if you're insulin resistant or have type 2 diabetes, then knowing how your body reacts to sugar could be the difference between life and death. Looking at week two, once you've seen and felt a blood sugar spike, especially for someone working hard to keep their blood sugar levels stable, this was enough to make this person choose foods that did not cause a blood sugar spike and the glucose levels remained under 150 until they thought, oh, I've got this blood sugar thing mastered and made homemade pizza with store-bought dough that you'll see raised his blood sugar well into the danger zone of over 200, just like my pad thai. So to review and conclude this episode, taking what we learned from our last episode on the damaging impacts of sugar on the brain, we know that glucose is toxic to the brain. So a person with this data would now need to make the data-informed decision to not eat foods that spike their blood sugar. This is one of those things that's easier said than done. How do you make huge lifestyle changes like this? 
I think it gets to the point that you'll do it if your life depends on it. Like I remember that math teacher, Sergey, with tears in his eyes on the hiking trails. You'll make changes when your doctor tells you loud and clear that you've got no other option. Make room for your health, or you'll need to make room for your illness. To conclude this episode and review of episode 117 on the damaging effects of sugar on the brain and body, today we covered what sugar does to the brain, cognition, and well-being, how sugar contributes to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, that we all have individual journeys on our pathway towards optimal health and well-being, and we looked at where my health took a turn towards wellness in 2005 and then again in 2014 with the hopes that my story will give you some thoughts with your own health story. So we'll conclude this episode with some tips on how to make actionable changes if you don't know where to begin in your journey towards improved health and well-being. Tip one, learn what foods are low glycemic and replace what you used to eat that used to spike your blood sugar with something else that doesn't. This is going to be the biggest change. As I remember looking at Dr. Jacoby and saying, you mean bananas are high in sugar? And he said, yes. And then he handed me a list of low glycemic fruits that included blueberries and raspberries that Jason Whitrock tested, and they kept his blood sugar low. I found some great resources for low glycemic foods from Dr. Daniel Lehman that I've also linked in the show notes. Tip two, discover the meal plan that makes you feel the best. There are so many different options and I only choose the meal plan that I eat because in my late 20s, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's the most common cause of female infertility. And who would have known that the diet plan that would work the best for me and completely reverse this health problem was to eat a diet similar for someone who's diabetic? I bought the PCOS diet book that surprisingly was written to also help protect someone against diabetes and heart disease. Tip three, read labels. When you read labels and know how to identify sugar to make better choices, it's shocking how many foods have hidden sugars. Did you know the average American consumes 150 pounds of sugar a year? Dr. Daniel Amen often quotes that. This makes sense when there's so many foods labeled as healthy with added hidden sugars. Making the following changes will change your brain, it will improve cognition and focus, and it will lead you towards improved results and away from diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. I hope that you find these tips as helpful as I did. I only discovered this pathway because I so happened to book an appointment with a doctor who believes that peripheral neuropathy, that numbness that I felt in my feet during exercise, is an early sign for what he's seen in his patients over the years with diabetes. My final thoughts come from Dr. Jacoby, who pleads with us. He says, I'm asking you to derail the express train, taking you straight from sugar to peripheral neuropathy, that numbness that I felt in my feet, then onward to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and many other neurological disorders, including multiple sclerosis, migraines, carpal tunnel syndrome, and Alzheimer's disease, to name a few. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. 
Do you know how your body responds to sugar? Have you ever measured your glucose levels? This data will help inform many of your decisions related to the foods you eat. I know I'm going to stick to eating those low glycemic foods that keep my blood sugar levels and hunger levels stable until those special moments like when I make it back to my hometown in Toronto, I'm definitely going to order that Hawaiian slice at the famous Pizza Pizza restaurant with extra pineapple and I'll enjoy every bite of it because you only live once. And with that final thought, we'll see you next week as we revisit episode 119 on the key ingredients of learning with the brain and mind. See you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 